The last question was asked for the first time, half in jest, on May 21st, 2061, at a time when humanity first stepped into the light. The question came about as a result of a $5 bet over highballs, and it happened this way. Alexander Adele and Bertram Lupov were two of the faithful attendants of Multivac. As well as any human beings could, they knew what lay beyond the cold, clicking, flashing face, miles and miles of face, of that giant computer. They had at least a vague notion of the general plan of relays and circuits that had long since grown past the point where any single human could possibly have a firm grasp of the whole. Multivac was self-adjusting and self-correcting. It had to be, for nothing human could adjust and correct it quickly enough, or even adequately enough. So Adele and Lupov attended the monstrous giant only lightly and superficially, yet as well as any men could. They fed it data, adjusted questions to its needs, and translated the answers that were issued. Certainly they, and all others like them, were fully entitled to share in the glory that was Multivac. For decades, Multivac had helped design the ship and plot the trajectories that enabled man to reach the moon, Mars, and Venus. But past that, Earth's poor resources could not support the ships. Too much energy was needed for the long trips. Earth exploited its coal and uranium with increasing efficiency, but there was only so much of both. But slowly, Multivac learned enough to answer deeper questions more fundamentally. And on May 14, 2061, what had been theory became fact. You've got a little time. We've got a little podcast. Welcome to Short Story Short Podcast. And today I'm here with... Christy Baxter. Excellent. Christy, of course, amazing podcaster. Uh, would it be fair to call you a bon vivant? I'll go with it. Sure. It's the first time, definitely. Excellent. And today we're talking about a story that kills me. It's, mm -hmm. it's so intense, and there are so many things you can pick at at it. And what's the name of that story, Christy? That story is The Last Question. By everyone's good friend, Isaac Asimov. Uh, so let's actually just start with one very basic concept that I think this story uh, does, and that is the repetition of a very simple string concept. Uh, person, person, talk, tech, ask the technology, get an answer, move forward. And I can't think of another story that does it as successfully as this one. Yeah, I think you're definitely right. It pulls you through and, and that, that repetition, it's sort of like, it's almost musical in its quality. You're like you keep on hitting the same theme over and over again from different people's perspectives and learning different things along the way about how the universe is progressing in Asimov's vision, this particular version of his vision of the future. And I, yeah, I think it does it incredibly successfully in that even though you're essentially reading the same thing over and over again, you can't stop until you get to the end. It's all about the collection of data to figure out whether or not entropy can be reversed is really what it comes down to. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, humanity is losing its form, its ultimate humanness. And I think that those two things grinding together like uh, tectonic plates is really cool. <laughs> but uh, so when did you first encounter this one? I found it on some random Reddit thread years ago. <laughs> and it just, it, somebody linked to it and I, I went and I read it and I couldn't stop reading it. Again, I was just pulled along by that string. 
And yeah, it's stuck in my head so much that to the extent that when you first asked me to do this, it was the first story that popped into my head after, and I hadn't read it in years. It's just one of those stories that you can't let go of because it feels so essential in a way. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of people point to it as Asimov's sort of best short work. And I probably not going to argue that one on this work on this case. But one of the things I find really fascinating is how much he got wrong, even though everything was pointed that direction. Talks about relays. There was no idea of miniaturization at that point. Uh, the idea was that computers would just grow larger and larger and larger and become more and more powerful uh, because they were creating greater and greater size. Um, and then the naming conventions he actually did get right went going from multivac to microvac to AC. And if you look at uh, Digital Equipment Corporation sort of famously had naming conventions that went exactly that same way, um, which is really, I'm kind of being a computer history nerd. Um, <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Uh, but, uh, but one of the things I'm interested in is where do you think really the impact of the story comes from? Is it the essential nature of the question that is being asked or is it something in the language? I think it's the question that's being asked. And, you know, in, in a way, it's such an essential question. You know, we keep on pushing forward through history, making mistakes as a, as a people, as a whole, as, as a race, as humanity. And the, the question is, when does it end? How does it end? You know, and none of us will be around to see that, God willing. Um, but it's, I think it's that question and that, that answer. The, the question and, and, you know, the answer that you eventually get to, but along the way, the answer is insufficient data for a meaningful answer. And really, doesn't that just boil down human existence and philosophy and all these things? It's really insufficient data for a meaningful answer. What I love also is that my first reading of it really got me with this one very simple idea. Everything we read in the story happened before our idea of creation. So all of us are happening after this, instead of this is a far projection from us now, which to me makes, it makes it an inevitability story. It's, you know, there is nothing you can do because you, you are actually created by a computer. <laughs> which, it's a really trippy thought. Yeah, it's a little dark. <laughs> yeah. And what's funny is that somehow a lot of times in stories that deal with the end of time, um, all, you know, six of them, they all are major bummers. And somehow this isn't a bummer. Again, I can't help but compare it to music. It's this weird thing where you, you have that repetition of a theme and then when you hear a slight variation of it but like say, say the, the the repetition of the theme has been darker in, in all this time and then we get to the end and the the repetition becomes a slight variation and that does something to you like almost physically like you feel this repetition it's, it's a little bit lighter it's more hopeful and you just you know when you feel it in your chest in music mm -hmm. i feel oh, yeah. it in my chest <laughs> Yeah, and I think one of the great, I, I would never dare to say that Isaac Asimov is a lyrical writer. He is not a writer whose prose is designed to come trippingly off the tongue. Um, I, as we heard in my intro. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, him and Heimlein kind of write with the precision of a pneumatic drill. 
but at the same time, what he's managing to do here with a relatively uh, pared down vocabulary and uh, not really, his sentences are kind of chunky, but by doing mm -hmm. that, he's actually, I think, giving us what we feel like is not quite a conversation, but it is something that is very basic. And in the way, I think he's stripped down a lot of the veneer. I have a feeling this story at one point was longer, like a lot longer. <laughs> and he just kept stripping things out and actually improving it by not giving us as much. And I think that's often what my problem with Asimov is, is I don't need to know every single distinct piece of this piece of hardware that has no <laughs> meaning to the story. Exactly. I think maybe there, there's, there's a possibility that it was him and there's also the possibility that he ran into a, an editor that was particularly good at, at stripping his style of writing down to the essentials, which is really with such an essential story, it's what you need. Mm -hmm. But excellent. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. Give me, give me a thought that we haven't come up with yet on the story from you. Seasons. <laughs> I'm going to compare this, the story and the idea that it brings to seasons. I talked about beginnings and endings, but I think we're, we're in, the, in the Northeast here. We're, we're starting to head into fall. And mm -hmm. you start to think about, you know, you just can't help it. Poets did it all the time. You start to think about the end of things as, as the plants start to die. And, you, you know, you, you start to have hope for the future, the spring, when everything comes back again. So I think in a way you can compare the two, the story and this, this essential idea of us ending things and then just complete rising like a, no, not like a phoenix, that's a cliche, rising <laughs> like, a, like a tulip in spring. There we go. And that is essentially the, the, the kind of hope that this gives us, even as most of it is, as you say, kind of dark. Yeah. And see, I was hoping when you said it was about seasons, you were talking about sports because it's the, the initial part is just the same thing over and over again. And it really doesn't matter until you get to the end when you get to the playoffs where you actually get the turnout for the entire thing. So no, it's, a, it's an apt metaphor, apt. Apt, either way. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, this has been wonderful. I love, I love talking the short stuff with you. <laughs> yes, and thank you so much for having me. This has been amazing. I love being on this podcast and talking about short stories. Yeah, perfect. Excellent. We'll definitely be asking you back. Yay! Especially if you would be a co-host. I would love that. Yes, solid. <laughs> you just make history. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> All right. Well, then, this has been Short Story. Short Podcast. Short Podcast.